Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. There are a great many women out there changing the planet for the good. Most of them you've never heard of. Every day committing acts of heroism and um, in small ways that really do matter. And my friend Sarah Serrani is one of them. You really need to meet her and hear what she's doing through her own nonprofit. She is an Ismaili Muslim And um, I didn't know much about that. But what you need to know is that a central tenet of Islam is to give, to be of service to others. Um, And that can be done through charity or philanthropy or, in her case, just acts of service. And her acts of service, at the level she does it, working with girls around the world, is really inspiring to me. I think you'll agree. There's this one saying that it's like education and your faith is the only thing no one can touch or take from you. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there and welcome to Man Listening. I'm Stuart Watson. Sarah Serrani and I were in a course together called PQ, or the Positivity Quotient, which I really enjoyed. And we were in the same small group together. She was the only woman in that group. And I quickly learned she's out there doing great things in the world and that you really needed to meet her and to hear her backstory as the daughter of immigrants from Pakistan who are very active in healthcare and the health services. So we talk about a little bit of everything. If you bail from this podcast before about three quarters of the way through, you're going to miss one of the funniest, the single funniest examples of mansplaining I have ever heard. So you really want to stick around just for that. Sarah Serrani, where were you born? I was born in Houston, Texas. For your mother, your number what of how many? For my mother, I am number one of three. And are you the big sister? Are you the one in control? Did the stereotypes about birth order apply? It's a great question. I think so. I am the big sister. That definitely applies in terms of feeling responsible and protective. But I think there are some shifts that have happened where sometimes my middle or younger sister are the ones that need to have control. I was the guinea pig still. But I feel like I often get mistaken for a middle child sometimes. What do you mean? I followed the traditional path for a long time and thought very conventionally when I was face, like outwardly facing. Um, but that meant that when I started kind of doing my own thing and, and, and following my curiosities, um, people were surprised by that because it didn't really follow the path that, you know, like a normal guinea pig first child, first daughter of immigrants would follow. <laughs> And so as a result, sometimes it's like, well, you're caring and you're very like maternal, like an older sister would be. But the interests and the choices you make professionally don't seem as conventional as a first child. 
Were your parents both immigrants? Yes, yes, they were both immigrants, both from Pakistan. My mom immigrated to the U.S. when she was um, around 17, 18. My dad immigrated in his mid-20s after doing med school in Pakistan. Um, and they met in Houston, actually. They met at the hospital. They met at Methodist Hospital, where I was born. What type of job did your mother have at the hospital? At the time, she was a respiratory therapist. And what type of doctor was your father? He was a pulmonologist, so what now is known as a COVID doctor, because he primarily deals with COVID now. And so what types of stories do you hear from him about the epidemic? I mean, a lot. I think a lot of it was, I was home for the pandemic for a while, um, just because I was relocated when the pandemic hit. Um, and my father, it was really hard because, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there weren't many resources and there wasn't as much knowledge about what was going on. So it was just really hard for frontline workers. Um, but one story that he would tell us often that, I mean, my, and my, I've never really seen my father cry. Um, but one of the times I saw him getting emotional was when he was talking about, then this was a time when in the hospitals you didn't have guests. So if you were admitted to the hospital, you had to be admitted alone. Um, and he said how a lot of people, they often died alone, right? Because they couldn't be with their loved ones. And in that space, you know, nurses and doctors, they would have, you know, usually they would be with patients. Um, but even then, like they couldn't really be with the patients. So the people that would end up holding the hands of people as they passed away or janitors and people who were cleaning the hospital. So that visual always sticks in my head and that's something he always talks about, about like the beauty of people and how people are kind, even in moments of lots of suffering. You strike me as a very empathic person. Was it hard for you during COVID not to be overwhelmed or burned up with those emotions? Yeah, I think I was very overwhelmed and burnt up with those emotions. I think I still am in some ways. How did you protect Sarah? Oh, I think I, it was a learning process. Um, a lot of times I didn't know what to do. I think for me that meant thinking of myself as a child and seeing what I need in every moment. For a while I was writing a lot. I love to write. Um, so I was writing a lot. And that worked for like eight months and then one day I woke up and it didn't work anymore. So I started painting. I got into oil painting and watercolor painting. There was a moment where I had gotten into kayaking. There was a lake, uh, when I was back in Texas, there's a lake behind my family's house and I tried kayaking. I tried, uh, I worked at different startups. I started different projects, um, just trying to see what works. It's like throwing, what is that thing? You throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. A lot of learning how to protect myself was just throwing something at a wall to see if it sticks. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it sticks for a while, and sometimes it sticks forever. If it's not too personal, did your parents come yeah. from the Muslim tradition? Yes, yes, they did. So I am technically, I'm technically, I am an Ismaili Muslim. So they came from the Muslim tradition, and our specific sect within Islam is called like Ismaili Muslim. Um, which historically has been very um, persecuted against, and our people have been really nomadic. So uh, that was a big part of growing up in the community I grew up in. What distinguishes that sect? The more 
academic answer is probably like there are certain things that instead of praying three times, uh, five times a day, we have pray three times a day and the type of prayer is different as well as like there are certain types from the pillars of Islam that we interpret in different ways. Um, but for me personally, that meant growing up, if I could summarize this, Smiley faith, I would say that the two most important things I grew up learning, the first one is service. And if you are able to, you know, um, if you have resources, it's important to use that to serve others. Um, service is like the biggest form of love and religion. Um, the second thing would be education. Um, there's this one saying that it's like education and your faith is the only thing no one can touch or take from you. So I grew up valuing education. I grew up valuing service. And then the third is this idea that we are all one and we are all brothers and sisters. But I think that's also a like um, identifying factor of a lot of them, a lot of religions in general. Yeah, the the pillar of service particularly intrigues me when it comes to you. You have lived a life of service. How did that manifest itself in, let's say, high school? Yeah, so I think in high school is an interesting period because it was not just service, but this, this, this when you're 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, you, the mask that you wear for the world is often who you think you should be. So it was wearing this mask of who I think I should be and a lot of that came off, you know, with service because that's who you think you should be. But at my core, service was so important, right? Like, I, I grew up seeing my father, like, he was there. But multiple months every year, he would just, like, leave and go to an underserved part of the world and just volunteer his time to help build health systems. And that was, like, normal growing up. So for me, like, I had the resources to you know, go to piano classes, to take chess lessons, to, for me, college wasn't a choice. You know, even before I was born, my parents were like, we want our kids to go to college. Let's start saving up before we even have kids, right? So I, I grew up with this privilege and these resources. But at the same time, a lot of the time, the communities I spent time in when I was 15, 16, 17, 18 in high school they did not have the same resources, right? I spent a lot of time volunteering at the Ronald McDonald House. I spent a lot of time working in health education and seeing that inequity between me, who, whose father is a doctor, and if I get sick, I don't have to worry <laughs> because I have immediate access to the healthcare system um, through his friends, right? And on the other hand, a lot of people my age or younger than me on the other side of the city who don't even have access to healthy food, who don't even have access to, you know, you can't go to the hospital because of transportation, who, um, like, th there's no way to get fruits and vegetables because there are food deserts. So your fruits and vegetables are potato chips, right? And that's not, <laughs> that's not the fault of any individual. It's this overall system where, you know, of, you know, health inequity. And, you know, like, <laughs> a lot of people who are, you know, like, um, communities of color are disproportionately affected by this. So seeing this and seeing myself in them, it broke my heart. And so I love thinking of it as like what breaks your heart is often what heals it. And so for me at that age, that manifested in doing whatever I can and playing my part to ease this, in, in that case it was health inequity, a little bit more, right? 
um, how can we together work to empower communities in this context? Um, how can we work together to educate communities in an empowering way and get other young people involved? Um, and at the time, it was more focused on nutrition and diabetes because Corpus Christi, where I grew up, um, had one of the highest rates of diabetes in the nation. 30% um, of people born in 2020 would eventually develop diabetes. Um, and it was the fattest city in the nation at the time and high, you know, like all these different health challenges. So at the time that that breaking my heart and healing it manifested in serving communities and working with education to kite because it, it broke my heart. How did you decide where to go to college? I had gone to Harvard University and I never thought that I would go there. Um, I, I loved service. I loved doing things. I'm someone who like loves doing 20 things at one time. Um, but my scores, I'm not a good test taker. So at the time, I, it's changed a lot, but at the time it depended a lot on SAT scores as well. And my scores just weren't that great. I applied to probably 20 schools and that's what like, that's, that was, the norm. I think it's still the norm. Probably people are applying to more now, but, and at the time they all came out the same day, around the same day as schools. But though I had applied to this, like an honors program at UT, University of Texas. And that was the only decision that came out before like the end of March. And I um, didn't get in. I didn't get, I got waitlisted to the honors program. So I was like, oh no, what do I do? I have to wait three or four months to hear back. And I had forgotten that I applied to Harvard because I think they asked for like, um, I, I maybe they asked for extra scores for like other tests you and I, I you those applied were applied to Harvard, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like I had applied to so many, and that wasn't on the top of my list, right? Like, cause you at the if you're applying, like I had applied to Yale, you know, and I was like, I want to go to Yale, and I was applying to a lot of schools, and a lot of the applications are similar, so it was never on the top of my list because it wasn't. I was like, I'm not gonna get in, like. So I, it wasn't on my radar of like, oh, this decision's coming out today. There were other schools that I was more interested, like there were other schools that I had applied to, right? That I was like, oh, Rice is coming out today, you know? Like maybe I'll try at Yale, like you know, they're getting out today. But Harvard, I was like, ah, it's too. And I was checking my emails for the other schools and there's one that I didn't get into. And usually on your email, it help, like most times they send you an email and it's like, check this portal. And then you click on the portal and then it tells you the decision. So I saw Harvard and I was like, oh, interesting. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I scrolled to the bottom expecting to see like a little portal and I don't see it. And I was like, oh, I didn't get in. And I scroll back to the front and it's like, congratulations. And I was like, oh, wow. And I just felt really emotional and started crying. And I was by myself on a bench by a lake in Corpus Christi, Texas, and it was my birthday. It was my birthday, too, and so I, like, took time, and I was like, oh, my God, and I called my mother, and I was like, um, I got into Harvard, and she was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like, how can we top that birthday gift? Like, do you want chicken wings for dinner? And I was like, that sounds great, <laughs> and by the time... By the, by the time that I got home, and, I, and in my head it was 30 minutes, but maybe it was an hour from this email I checked to getting home, there were already flowers on the door from my uncle in Pakistan 
because in my very South Asian family, word spreads way faster than fire. So in that time, my mother had called her mother, who had called my aunt, who had called his son. And they were like, oh my God, one of our, like someone in our family is going to Harvard. And yeah, that's kind of how that's, <laughs> that's kind of how, that's kind of how that worked out. Did your parents mm-hmm. want you to be a doctor? Oh my God, absolutely. My parents <laughs> wanted me to be, do- be a doctor. My society wanted me to be a doctor. I wanted me to be a doctor. Still, I think there's still hope in my parents <laughs> that I will be a doctor. It's a bit late, <laughs> but there's still that hope. They're like, this is, this is what we need. She needs to do. She needs to be a doctor. So that's still there. That hope has not died, my friend. What line of study lit you up? What really spoke to you? Where did you resonate? Everything. <laughs> I think that one thing, yeah, no, it's, it's like, and like in that sense that like a lot of times people say they chose one thing and studied, you know, like, I mean, technically my degree was in, in social studies and health, but like that doesn't mean anything for me because a lot of people are like, I took computer science classes all of college or I took art classes all of college. I think I took classes in college, not I think, from 22 different departments. Like almost every single department, I took a class. And at the end, it was a running joke with my friends that they're like, every time I talk to you, you have a new major. <laughs> or like, what are you even studying? Because you have a music class and a statistics class and you have a health class and a psychology class. And I loved that. Like for me, I found myself in my psychology class being like, I love this, but why aren't we looking at policies? And my policy class being like, I love this, but what about how people feel? And in my anthropology class being like, culture is amazing, but we're not thinking about how impactful music can be on like trauma, you know, like individual traumas. So my college experience and choosing what I wanted to study, it was that everything together lit me up because I see how things are connected. And for me, in order to understand something, I have to look at it from different angles to better understand anything, like any angle, right? Um, And it was a running joke because at the end, I had graduated in this degree called social studies, which means that A, it's like, it's the social sciences, but I had petitioned for almost every class to count and been like, please, I'm graduating. Can you please count this music class towards this degree? Please, can you count the statistics class to this degree? And like, they're like, but, but your focus is on global health. And I was like, let me explain to you how it's important to understand music and race and, you know, policy to better understand health. And either I made a convincing argument or they were just tired of me showing up to their office once or twice a week <laughs> for like a year that they, that they gave me a single degree. Where did you envision using this and where did you actually end up first using this? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think where I envisioned it, at the time, I think I envisioned that I also wanted to be a doctor. So this was kind of my way of like exploring everything before. But if I really want to answer that question, I think how I used it or when I started using it was in everything, you know, like 
at first paying gig out of college, I was working at Ashoka, Innovators for the Public. It's a social entrepreneurship organization. So say the challenge was, you know, food security in West Africa. You have to think about all the stakeholders that are at play affecting this. So if you're looking at food security, you're not just looking at food security and nutrition. You're looking at what's the transportation to get to these areas? How do we understand the agriculture? How do we contact people who are involved with like local businesses that, that take the agricultural products to different stores? How do we think about policymakers? Okay, agriculture affects health. How do we think about health? So thinking about this in, in, in this like systems thinking way really helped me in that place. And shortly after, not shortly afterwards, but like a year, I mean, I had moved to Peru afterwards and working with more rural systems there, like with healthcare and empowerment and entrepreneurship. And that was even more so because sometimes in, when you're living in Washington, D.C. or Boston or, you know, a big city, you don't, when you, so when you buy a fish, say you go to the the grocery store or you Uber eat something and you buy like fish, right? You don't see how interconnected everything is. But when you're, I was living in the jungle in remote communities in the Amazon. And when you're there, you see how interconnected everything is because you're not buying a fish, you're fishing. And when you're fishing, you realize like, okay, so let's say this, you know, this um, community, the children in this community are suffering from malnutrition. Why? It's because they don't have adequate nutrition because there are no fish in the river. Okay, why aren't there fish in the river? Oh, it's because of a pot increased plastic pollution and um, chemicals that are affecting the fish. Okay, why is that happening? Increased plastic pollution because in the city, 15 miles away, people are, in, like, there's more access to, like, things with packaging, like plastic packaging. So the plastic packaging is ending up in the river because there's more consumption of, like, uh, like consumer goods. Why are there chemicals? Oh, it's because um, gas prices are going up, so they're doing mining for gas in a different part of the river, and the, the what's it called, like the um, waste from this mining is going into the river downstream and affecting the fish populations. Okay, why is the mining going up? Okay, it's because like globally, like fossil fuels, like this is too expensive here, so people are mining here. And okay, why, who's mining there? Oh, it's Chinese companies mining. Oh, it's American companies mining. Oh, why are they mining? Oh, it's because Peru has like this relationship with Chinese governments or this relationship with U.S. governments. So when you see this in a different context, if you really want to understand this issue of, you know, children being malnourished, you have to understand, you know, like how plastic consumption works. You have to understand waste. You have to understand chemicals. You have to understand like water, what goes downstream, right? You have to understand like international relations between countries to see like what's happening. You have to understand fossil fuels. You have to understand policy. So like in these issues, it may seem like child malnutrition is a health issue, but it's not. It's like everything is connected to it. And even like, oh, why don't people eat more fish? Like, it's not that simple, right? And we're so disconnected from it, sometimes living in the city, that when we buy a fish, we want a fish, we go to the grocery store, it's always there, we buy it. Maybe it's 50 cents more, maybe it's not, you don't really notice. You buy it, you eat it, you don't think about it. And that disconnect disconnects us from the reality that everything is connected, 
which is so important when you're attacking or understanding any any challenge at all. I don't know why that word came out. Um, actually, <laughs> I was like saying that. I was like, that's a strange Freudian slip there. Attacking. I, I don't view it as attacking. I More than attacking, I view it as understanding. But the reason that attacking came out, I think, is because when I think of attacking, I think of anger. And I have a lot of frustration around this, right? And there's a lot of anger globally, especially when it comes to the climate, of a failure to understand how connected everything is and how connected we are and how connected we are to everything, right? Um, and so that, and sometimes we aren't angry enough. Like people associate anger as a bad thing, but I think it's so important. Um, and I think that's why attacking came out because sometimes when we're angry, we want to attack, but that's not the right word. Um, I feel like the right word, yeah, it would be understand. What, what is a healthy expression of anger in your view? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first is learning how to um, verbalize and communicate verbally where the anger is coming up and the root of that, right? Like, say, you know, you, you know, we're hanging out and you throw a plastic bottle in the river and I yell at you, right? And like with my words, I attack you. That's not healthy, right? Also, that's not the root of it. It's shaming the root and of I'm it going isn't to just shut down and yell back at you. Exactly. Of course, it's not productive at all, right? So understanding the root, okay, why am I angry? Why did this thing that story did, why did it bother me so much, right? And at the root of anger so much of the time is love and care. So I think understanding that more about like the core of anger sometimes is not this, it, it's fiery. It's like a fiery love. Or there's this activist I love a lot. Her name is Valerie Kaur, and she calls it revolutionary love. Um, but it's this revolutionary love that's the core of anger sometimes, especially in these cases. So it's like learning how to manifest that. In an age of profoundly anti-democratic and totalitarian values on the rise, um, particularly among white men, how do you engage productively? You, Sarah. Yeah, me. So a I Texan. think sometimes, haha, <laughs> Texan, yes. I know it's so interesting because like when I go back to Texas, I see all the, the cars with Trump stickers on them and uh, those uh, yard signs with Trump, with Trump forever on them as well. Um, and I think that that's a great question. And that's definitely a question that at times I do not act what I'm about to answer because sometimes I shut down or sometimes I get frustrated and sometimes I just don't have the energy to. But in the moments where I can respond like I'd like to, um, I think that manifests in, there's this thing I've been thinking about a lot called this love that speaks in we. Um, and this love that speaks in we is about how, it's about community, right? It's about instead of me thinking that we're on two different teams, you know, you and I or another person and I who I may disagree with, it's thinking about how we're on the same team. So connecting with you on a personal level. And it's, I've seen my friend 
Renee in New Mexico do this countless times in ways I cannot imagine, right? Or people like in who can see the friend or brother or sister or mother or father or loved one in someone. And I think it starts with that, right? Like this whole concept of, uh, this is concept of seeing no stranger that Valerie Kaur talks about as well, who I really admire. But me looking at that person and instead of focusing on the things that divide us, because it's not going to be productive to start a conversation with, let's talk about trans rights. (laughs) Let's talk about thoughts on democracy, you know? Like, do you, you know, like, you, what assumptions do you have about me? It's, I think that sometimes people care a lot and they're not listened to and they want to talk about the things that they love and they want to talk about the things in their heart, but they're not given an opportunity to. So sitting with that person and trying to just be there for them in that moment and ask them about something they love when you feel like they feel more like a friend than an enemy like when you can see them and be like oh like i part of me loves you because you remind me of my friend like part of me loves you because you remind me of my sister or part of me loves you because even though you're a straight white man with you know different political views different this view different that view that view you remind me a bit of myself and once you can get there sometimes you don't have to get past that right sometimes it's like that's enough, right? You don't have to talk about politics. That's enough because we're human at the end of the day. And at the core, all of us want to feel loved, valued, and accepted. Because often it's not like, it's not what you think, you know? Um, I was working with COVID in New Mexico for a bit. I guess I still am. But there are so many, we're working to increase vaccination rates, right? And there are so many myths you hear about the vaccine, right? Um, and one of them that was going around was that the COVID vaccine has a chip in it and the government's tracking you. So when I first heard this, also because of my background, right? My dad's a lung doctor. My dad's working in COVID. The second that the vaccine was available for my bracket, I got the vaccine, right? Me getting the vaccine was never a choice I made. I, I always assumed that I was going to get it. It wasn't a decision in my head, right? That's my conditioning. So when I heard this, that people weren't getting the vaccine because of a chip the government's putting, I thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was super ridiculous. I was like, anti-vaxxers, what are people doing? The pictures of people saying this in the media and in, in the news were like, again, exactly the demographic that you described, right? So I was like, who, like, who would believe this, right? This is ridiculous. I'm so angry these people are compromising the health of the country. So that was my, that's what I was coming in with. And I talked to my friend, who I love a lot, um, and she said that she was against the vaccine at first. And I was like, you know, why, Renee? Why were you against the vaccine? And she was talking about that she'd heard these rumors that um, the chip, the government put chips in the vaccine. And for a second there, I was like, girl, really? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. What? <laughs> you know, like, we're friends. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? And... Um, but, but, but I care about her a lot, right? I love her so much. She's my friend. And I was like, tell me more. Like, where is that coming from? And she's like, well, 
Like, and she, she was previously incarcerated and works with people who are previously incarcerated as well. And she's like, well, for a lot of us who have literally been chipped by the government, right? Like on an ankle bracelet and have been followed by the government and chipped by the government. And that's been a very traumatizing experience. Even the rumor of that going around is enough for me to at least consider at the least not getting this, right? And I had never thought about that before. I had ne- I do not have that lived experience and that was not in my conditioning and I did not think about that before. And as I begin to talk to more people about these myths, you understand, oh, okay, like people do things for a reason. The least we can do is try to understand their reason. And if, if and it was, in that case, it was a lot more helpful to me because Renee is a woman of color, you know, she's like amazing we're, and we're friends, right? So it was easier for me to be like, hey, I want to understand you. Like, where are you coming from? Me being open to them, trying to find myself in them, see a tiny bit of myself in them and just try to understand where I'm coming from. Because if I attack them, it's not going to be helpful. It's only going to make their stereotype of people like me stronger. Have you seen this work? Uh, have you seen any sort of a creating of a culture or a common space or just a, you know, creating space, creating an event, creating something for the love of God to where we're not screaming at each other across picket lines or on some sort of call-in show? Have you seen it work? Yeah, I have actually. Um, and I think it, that what, what comes to my mind is like this... I was I'm doing this project in New Mexico and we bring together community health workers um, every other week, right? And a lot of them, it's for um, COVID updates, right? And resources. So that was the initial intention of the call, but a few friends and I who work together on this call, it's now this community, right? So people, community health workers and activists from all over the state come together. And we have someone from the government as well, kind of there as like, from the health department there as like a body of knowledge and wisdom but it's beautiful because back in august september when these calls started there was a lot of animosity a lot of anger um, towards each other towards the government just a lot of um attention um and over the past months right and this doesn't happen overnight like i think maybe in august september we started and it's april now right so months of meeting for like an hour and a half every other week together. Um, and there are around like 60 to 90 people who come on Zoom. And now it's a space where it's love, right? People feel comfortable sharing like anxieties they have. You know, there are, a lot of them are community leaders. They feel comfortable saying how alone they feel sometimes. Um, and now the space, yes, it's for education as well, but the main purpose of these calls is community, right? It's for people to feel a little less alone and to breathe together and to know that they're not alone. And this gives me hope because I know how it started and I know how sometimes it was hard to, you know, we don't want to, like, our team was like, do we, we want, do we want to open a space for people to, like, complain about us? You know, like that, is that constructive? And we're like, no, we need to. Let's open up a space for people to talk about what's actually on their minds, what's actually on their hearts, even if they're angry at like what the system's doing, because we need to be held accountable. 
And like the most important thing is making people feel listened to. And again, it's a process, right? Like this is takes months. And this is people from different backgrounds, from everywhere, right? And it's hard. And it's challenging. Because sometimes, sometimes like when people think of this, people think of the end product. Like, oh, everyone's sitting happily and drinking tea and talking about, you know, like the dreams they have for the world. And it's beautiful. And I know, I strongly believe that this can get there. Because this, like, this revolutionary love, like, and I don't, I know love is a very flowery thing that sometimes we're like, oh, love, Valentine's Day, whatever. But it's very strong. It's this ability to care for another and place the collective over the individual. Whether it's love for the environment, whether it's love for another person, whether it's love for like, you know, um, a community, whether it's love for peace, it's ability to put that experience of the collective, that peace of the collective, that well-being of the collective or well-being of the relationship over my ego. So it's a very powerful thing, right? It's revolutionary if you can get a community of people to put the sacredness and well-being and peace of the community over an ego and if you can get a group to do that that's love yes but it's revolutionary love and so that is possible but people think it's easy (laughs) and it's not easy like it requires effort and requires intention and requires time and dedication to be able to get to the place sometimes where you're having tea with someone you never thought you'd be having tea with. You've operated in a wide variety of cultures all over the world. Tell me a story of a culture in which, because you're a woman, you were talked over, not listened to, mansplained to, um, and what you did. Tell me a story where you were like, whoa, whoa, we're not in Kansas anymore we're not even in texas anymore oh my god that happens so frequently yeah i think that i mean it's interesting because sometimes these things happen closest to home right so i think that i've gone to a lot of places but in other places not only have i been a woman but i've also been an outsider i've also you know all these other dynamics that also influence how people sometimes treat me or see me um but one example was i mean it was in boston you know, like I was working at this startup, this health tech startup, and I was at this table and it was all men. And a lot of them were like CEOs or CTOs of big hospital systems in Boston. And I was the only woman and I'm tiny. I'm like five foot, um, probably wearing like a flowery dress or something like that with a blazer. So I was definitely the most colorful person. And I was probably around 20, 21 And um, when people saw me, they at first thought that I was the one, like there was a catered lunch, and so that I was the one taking orders for the catered lunch. They were like, oh, I want this. Can you bring this to me? Can you bring me this sandwich to my table? And as a people pleaser, as you know, Stuart, because we took this class together, um, we, I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, I... I don't know what sandwich this guy ordered, but I feel like I should be doing something about it. And then I had the courage to say, "Oh, sorry, I'm I'm um I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not the one I, I I'm here I'm I'm here at the meeting." Um, 
And he was like, oh, you're the one taking notes. Great. You're the assistant. And I didn't know how to say that I was the one presenting. And so I didn't. I waited until I was there and I felt the way people looked at me or the way they looked at their phones and didn't even look at me when I was saying something and how that changed in my male, like the, the men I was working with when they presented. Now, some years later, do you still say sorry? I do. Before that? Like if that happened today, you do say sorry. I do. I, the thing that that's worse now almost is that I say sorry, but I'm highly aware of the fact that I don't need to say sorry. So back then I said sorry and I was like, I didn't know that I didn't need to apologize. And now I notice myself saying sorry and apologizing for taking up space. I catch myself when I can. But almost always I notice it and I'm like, man, I don't need to say sorry. Like I'm apologizing for taking up space that I also deserve to be in. It's a process. When I, as a white man, am called on those things, um, it's profoundly uncomfortable, but I get it. I learn the lesson. When I'm not called on those things, I learn nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I, I want to give you all the encouragement in the world to say, I'm sorry, wait a minute, I'm not sorry. <laughs> you can be not sorry, Sarah. Not sorry, Sarah. I love it. Yes, I remember like even another funny story that I still make fun of this friend to this day. I have a good friend and um, he was trying to explain to me he was trying to explain to me how to use a tampon. And that is the most, I was and, like, and, and so excuse tell, me. <laughs> tell me, tell me, okay, I'm dying to hear his instruction. So what was his instruction? I know, I was like, at the time I was in college and I was having, you know, I was like, I was, I was like, you know, I was like, I was nervous about using tampons. And he was like, Sarah, it's not that hard. All you have to do is take this and push it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, have you have you seen a tampon? He said no. He said no. And I brought one out. I gave it to him. And he said, now show me. And he opened this package, struggling to open the little plastic package. Opened the package and he said, whoa, I had no idea that tampons were this big. And I was like, what are you doing mansplaining to me how to use a tampon? Like, so, I mean, that was like the worst example of mansplaining. <laughs> oh, my God. That is priceless. Priceless. Oh, my God. That is just the best story. That is just the perfect. Oh, my God. Uh, was it a learning experience for him, let us pray? Oh, I think so. I think I, I think it was like a very, I was with a friend as well, my, with my friend Christina, and we just looked at each other. We, we couldn't even laugh because we were so shocked that he was even part of the conversation <laughs> and carrying it. And we're like, how do you respond to this? You know, like, like, how do you even respond to this? So till this day, we make fun of him because we're like, that's the epitome, like, you know, of like, of Has he gotten better? Is and he still a friend? a woman, you know? Is he still a friend? <laughs> <laughs>
And has he, has, he's still a friend. Has he yes. gotten better? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's got, he's a lot more understanding since then. He has not explained to me how to, you know, how to, how to put in a tampon, how to, you know, like about menstrual cycles, women's reproductive health. He has not gone in that direction. What is an example of um, a position that you held that you felt like, oof, I did some good in the world? Ooh, um, like you don't have to give me the Nobel Prize. I, I feel like in a very small way, when I left that place, it was so much better than when I arrived. Yeah, I, I think, I don't even think it's a place. I think it's a space. So for me, that has been facilitating leadership and empowerment workshops for youth. Um, and I say that because I don't often realize how impactful it is until people tell you, right? And I have this little, this rainbow bracelet that I wear on my wrist all the time as a reminder. Um, because it happened, I was in this workshop and I wasn't even leading it. I was, I wasn't even, I was, I remember I was in Brazil and I was like, there were four facilitators and I was the one who was almost running around a little bit and like to make sure everything's okay. And there was a girl who had to ask a question and, and uh, she, she raised her hand, but she didn't get to ask her question. So I encouraged her to ask that question to the guest speaker afterwards. And she said, she came to me afterwards and said, the way that you looked at me saved my life. The way that you looked at me saved my life. And I didn't even know, right? Um, I didn't even know that. And I think that in those spaces, working with holding space um, with young people who so desperately need to be seen, heard, loved, and accepted, um, it's in those spaces where I feel like I'm making the biggest difference. Because in those spaces where even though I'm not, it's like there's this thing about, you know, we have to change the whole world. We have to change the world. I want to change the world. But we fail to realize that each individual person is a whole world in themselves. And when you can show up for one person and give them the strength to show up for themselves and others, then you are changing the world. It's like this quote from that book, extremely loud, incredibly close, like the little boy stressed out. He's like, dad, like the world is so big. How am I ever going to make a difference? And the father says, like, even if you move one grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, you're still changing the desert. So it's like, even if you move one grain of sand or look at one person or encourage one person or empower one person and like believe in one person, that can change their world. So for me, it's that. It's like in these spaces, not necessarily when I'm taking space, but when I'm holding space and empowering others to take space is when I feel like I'm making the biggest difference. What gives you hope? People. I think people give me hope. I think people being themselves gives me hope. I think that when people want to show up for other people, that gives me hope. I think people being kind to people when they don't have to be gives me hope. Um, I think, yeah, that gives me so much hope because I think at the core, people are really kind, but when they don't have, you know, they care, people care a lot. I think at their core, everyone cares so much, but when that care isn't channeled the right way, it becomes this unhealthy anger or it becomes attacking. 
But if you can kind of see that care in everyone and realize that there's so much care in everyone, that gives me so much hope that people at their core really care. If we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? My legacy in words? Yeah. What will they say at the memorial? Hopefully that, that Sarah believed in me. That's it. How did you communicate that to those kids? I don't, under, I don't really know. I, I don't, because in those moments when people tell me that, I always think I'm not doing anything. I actually feel bad because I'm like, <laughs> man, I didn't know you were going through that. I wish I did more. I, I didn't do anything. And so I never, I don't think it was in the strongest of moments like this. It wasn't this intentional. Like it wasn't that I was intentionally trying to do this. That wasn't my intention. I think it just happened. And I think it's because I really cared about them. Sarah Surani, I could talk to you all day long. Um, and I'm sad to have to say so long and we'll pick up the conversation later. But I super appreciate you making time. I so admire you. I love what you're doing. It's a privilege to know you. It's a privilege to know you too. And I love you too. Sarah Surani is the co-founder of She Is The Universe. She Is The Universe, which you can find at She Is The Universe Project or just sheistheuniverse.org. Amazing work. Thank you, Sarah. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. And thank you for all you do to support Man Listening, even if it's just by listening, and all you have done since the very beginning. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.